So imagine if poker is your life. How are you going to feel when poker goes bad? How, how affected are you going to be by things going on in your poker environments? So even like the way you're affected by results can be very unhealthy. You've got to find a way to build an identity away from poker. Your identity as a person, you've got to start building elsewhere as well. You've got to start creating like more of a life, more of a balanced life. And it's it's bigger than like, I've always got, I always think like, we play the game of poker, but we're playing the game of life, which is infinitely bigger. Like it's so much better. Like, so we've got to, we've got to put poker in its context. Hey guys, it's Ranchex, and today my guest is Adam Carmichael. He is a mindset and performance coach, and it's his second appearance on the show. As you know, I made quite a few episodes on the topic of mental game in poker, and this one is one of my favorites. Adam gives plenty of useful and actionable advice. We cover a wide range of topics on the subject, some purely focused on achieving success in poker and some more general about achieving success in life. As always, we have timestamps in the description, so feel free to jump around. And now, enjoy this conversation with Adam Carmichael. Adam, yeah. um, such a pleasure, such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you for, ma- for making the time, second time on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to hopefully share some knowledge with your audience. Yeah, and well, basically what what have we discussed previously? I feel like we need to redo it um, for the sake of audio. And uh, obviously, the first time you came on the show, it was a very different um, experience in a way. I mean, first of all, the first appearance was last year in December. Um, we were still doing the show live. Uh, in front of a Twitch audience. So the, the whole flow of the conversation was very different. So I'm very much looking forward to this one. And the world is different because obviously <laughs> comparing to December, we're in a pretty different situation right now. Yeah. And nowadays, what you do, uh, coaching people for their mental game, for performance, is as relevant as ever. Uh, it's It's just... A time when a lot of people do self-reflection, a lot of people are are seeking to improve themselves. So I feel like we've got a, a lot to discuss today. Yeah, I'm excited. Excited to dive in. Right. Well, let's dive in and, and start with um, how do you feel? Are more people reaching out to you uh, during this time? Are more people seeking to improve themselves? Yeah, I'd say like a lot's changed since we spoke last. So we, we spoke December last year in a normal world. Now, as of rec- recording this, we're in peak pandemic round two for Europe. And yeah, there's been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of craziness in the world. And a lot of people have been reaching out to me for help. My job, for you guys who don't know, I'm a mindset performance coach. I specialize in work with poker players to help them build a better mindset and also the performance habits to excel in the poker climate. And the poker climate's been a bit strange. So obviously on the world level, things have gone crazy, wild, chaotic, but the poker games online have actually been very good. So there's been actually a big opportunity. So a lot of people have been reaching out to me to both deal with the current kind of world levels and how to deal with uncertainty that's going on, but also how to maximize the current online opportunities. I've had live players transitioning from live to online and also live players who want to really, really knuckle down over these couple, the months that have passed and really, really work hard. So uh, yeah, definitely, uh, I feel like now has been a great time to go internal over external. We're generally very busy rushing around for external rewards, have busy social lives, doing lots of stuff. All that's been kind of taken away. And now we're left with ourselves a little bit more. It's like, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And what, what's important to you? And obviously, obviously, you guys watching this podcast, watching this on YouTube or listening to this, 
you guys are interested in poker and excelling in poker. So hopefully you've been using this time to uh, reflect on where you're trying to go and actually getting clear and working out the path you want to take and then actually develop the habits, routines and systems needed to actually have more success. So yeah, I feel like on the world level, people struggle with uncertainty a lot. Poker players struggle in the poker contest because poker is brutal with uncertainty, which we'll probably get into throughout this conversation. But they've got a higher threshold for uncertainty in general. By that, I mean like the current world events are probably less shocking to the average poker player than they are to the average person. Um, and poker players have the opportunity to uh, work harder at poker. Obviously, live players, any live guys watching this, you may be like, no, I don't. But the online guys definitely have an opportunity to actually just knuckle down for this period and come out the other side, a better version of themselves, hopefully with healthy bank accounts, looking after their health mindset. And yeah, I've, I've been having a lot of players through this period really get the best out of themselves. And I, I've been kind of trying to frame it as coming out of this COVID period as the 2.0 version of you. So going into it, things aren't going to be the same. We're going to go into a different world. I want you to come out of it, not as a worse version, but a 2.0 version, a better upgraded version. And what needs to happen for you to, 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 to achieve that? So uh, yeah, I think it's been very interesting. I think this time's definitely going to uh, separate a lot of people. Some people are going to come out in worse situations, but hopefully those the type of people watching this podcast and who've been actually putting in the internal work, you can actually come out of this better, all right? You can be, you can actually use this as an opportunity to become a better version of yourself and a better poker player. Mm. I want to zoom in on something that you said, um, that poker players have a higher threshold for uncertainty. Therefore, poker players are better prepared to deal with the new situation. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thought. And um, do you want to expand on that? Yeah. yeah, sure. All right, so imagine someone who's in a normal job, so like most of the world, and they go to work and they have a full month's work. And at the end of it, they get a salary. Their job has very set hours. So they have a set hours for the job. They've set social life, a set income at the end of the month. They know how much they're paying for their bills, all their outgoings kind of preset. So every month, everything's kind of set. Now you throw in COVID and all of a sudden, income's disrupted, work schedule's disrupted, social life's disrupted. Wait a second, they've got to figure out everything for themselves. All right, so that's, that's like the average person through the, the COVID situation. Pocket player, income every month, completely volatile, already used to that. Hours they work, completely up to you from day one. COVID has zero impact on that if you're an online player. Social life, already quite erratic and round the clock, and you fit it in when you can. So uh, there's so much of like these like, unpredictable, like kind of routine lifestyle factors that poker players are used to. So just from the structural point of view, poker players have got like a big leg up on that. And then there's just the nature of the unpredictability of what you do for a living. Like people aren't used to spinning roulette wheels for their income. You guys that spin the kind of variance wheel every week, every month, and how much do you make in a month is variance dependent. People aren't used to that. People are used to like very set outcomes. I do this, I get that, I do this. And when you just say all of a sudden, all the structures that society's built for you have just crumbled in, in, a, in a way, and you just got to figure it out for yourself, a lot of people are just scared and they're like, well, what do I do and how do I deal with it? Poker players are just like, oh, just a, just a, just a bad variance month. They can like almost class COVID as a bit of variance. And on the flip side, there's, there's new opportunities within poker. And the market itself for poker hasn't been negatively impacted. So they can quickly go, oh, bad life circumstances. Oh, wait a minute, the poker games are still good. All right, cool. I should probably channel my attention there. So uh, yeah, I feel like there's a few avenues in terms of the structural stuff and then also uh, just dealing with variance day to day, um, more than the average person puts them in a better position. Mm, interesting. And what do you think? Maybe poker as a vacation, as a career, 
molds um, one's sort of view of the world because of the fact that you know we have to deal with variants a lot. And I mean, obviously, some people fail to learn to deal with variants and still moan, um, et cetera, et cetera, and blame everybody else apart from themselves on their bad results. But you know, for the most part, the people who've been at it for long enough and sort mm -hmm. of learned as they go, it, I, I believe it changes the, the way you see the world because, you know, you, you see the impact of variance on, on, on so many events. And also you understand that sometimes you can do everything right. It doesn't guarantee the, the successful result, which is, I believe, an idea that people from other walks of life who haven't had that experience they kind of struggle with that because it seems unfair. You know, this this notion of fair and fair to a lot of people, it does seem unfair that, hey, I, I did everything right and I still got punished, punished for that or I didn't get my carrot that I expected. Whereas mm -hmm. we are more used to the fact that, yeah, you know what? You did everything right. Well, good luck and fine. You know, good mm -hmm. job. Try again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so poker players are trained to think in probabilities. Like there's a probability of you winning a pot, probability of you losing a pot, probability of everything. And no matter how much equity you have, there's a probability of the inverse outcome. Play a poker for any period of time and you'll see all of a sudden those low probability outcomes actually come up, come up more often than you would think. So you don't get thrown off as often. Obviously, if you're new to poker, you're still working on dealing with variants, this is something you've got to train yourself at, all right? So I'm referring to like more advanced players who are at least um, experienced at dealing with the day-to-day -day swings, month-to-month -month swings. But yeah, you're right. Like most people can't deal with this. Like I was reading out the mind recently, actually, and it's very good at dealing with like, say, 50-50 scenarios, all right? So uh, there's a great book called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Talib. And he talks about this concept, how the brain is very good at dealing with a 50-50 coin flip. So for example, if I flip a coin and, and I say heads, I know there's a 50% chance of each. So if I win, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I can deal with that. If I lose, I'm like, all right, I can, I can see it. And I can logically see I'm going to win half the time. But if I was going to win that coin flip, I'll say a, a poker pot and I had 20% equity and I was only going to win that one in five times, the mind is very, very bad at feeling that out. So for example, I would lose three of those in a row and I'd be like, my mind would be like, this, this feels unfair. So this is this unfairness feeling that gets kind of triggered. So if I, in poker, a lot of poker players think they run bad and it's not. It's because the mind can't, uh, can't figure out these kind of probabilities on the fly. So it feels, it feels like you're running worse than you are. And on the flip side, for example, if say you win with 80% equity, that's running good, all right? So you get 100% equity. You got paid 100% equity, not 80. So you ran good when you won. We don't chalk up the wins, just the losses. So uh, once you're like, when you're newish to poker, you're still struggling with variance, these things play on you. But as you have more experience, you get used to these parameters and you get used to good outcomes, bad outcomes, it, it all can happen. So then on a world level, when you throw in COVID, which um, Nassim Talib's got another book called The Black Swan, which is an amazing book, which literally talks exactly about this concept, which The Black Swan's about, imagine every swan in the world is white. What's the odds of being a black, black swan? And you say, well, zero, because they're all white. But then a black swan gets found. And now it goes from zero to one. It's like, oh, so it was a 0% chance, but now it's happened and now it's changed everything. COVID is a black swan. It was a 0% chance event. No one's, no economist will factor it into their calculations, but now it disrupts everything and this can crash stuff. So uh, 
Poker players are better at dealing with that because we're used to thinking everything has a shot. Everything, we're used to seeing two, two outlaws come in. We're used to seeing lower probability outcomes come, outcomes come in. And we're also, on a more fundamental level, we're used to not getting our own way. So we're used to doing things right and the outcome coming back. So we use this like kind of negative feedback loop. So like you said, like about people in normal jobs, if you're working hard, you've built a business for five years, you've got an amazing setup, you, you're starting to get the rewards from it and the government closed down your business for the next year, you're going to be, whoa, that's, that's just going to nowhere because everything was just going up linearly and you were doing everything right and you controlled the variables. In poker, that would be like, oh, I ran, you just, poker players would even say things like, oh, the business, I ran bad. I ran bad in the business venture. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. We even use the language of it. I got unlucky. Like in, I can picture myself, I've got some friends who've just opened a gym in Bali and it was going really, really well. It was crushing. And then COVID comes and they go, oh, ran bad. We ran bad. And it's just like, it's just a mindset that you, you instill into other things. And it was, it was, it was unlucky. It was, we can't change it. And I think other people do struggle with that more because that feeling of being unlucky is hard to deal with when you, when you have an experience of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of probabilities, which is something that I believe people should learn from early age. It should be part of your education, like a big part, not just like on your final year, a bit of statistics and then, you know, your your professor is discussing like the deck of cards or a roulette wheel or something intangible. Mm-hmm. I believe the benefit of learning the probabilities tangibly it's huge because like you said, you know, we're, our brain is wired to deal with the 50-50 quite all right. But mm-hmm. 20-80, it's pretty hard. Mm-hmm. But for poker players, I mean, everybody in the beginning feels like when their aces is getting, are getting cracked pre-flop, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's the end of the world. It's just, it's incredible. Did you see what happened? And a seasoned player is going to say like, yeah, I saw what happened. Like, you know, twenty percent thing yeah. happened. It's gonna happen twenty percent of the time, you know, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, and eventually we start to understand, like, okay, even a one percent, a zero point one percent thing is sometimes gonna happen. It's very mm-hmm. unlikely, but very unlikely still has a specific probability which can be measured. So this tangible experience of getting exposed to probabilities probably wires our our brain very differently. And, yeah, I agree. In the current climate, it's definitely uh, beneficial, even just on a mental level, you know, because you, you've uh, outlined how the life is not impacted as much because the routines are not impaired. Uh, poker players already are used to variance in their income, in their hours, in their social life, et cetera, et cetera, and are in general more adaptable probably because of lack of rigidity in their structure and their life. But on the mental level, just to comprehend everything and what's going on, it's probably very healthy to, to have that um, experience of, of understanding the probabilities. Yeah, definitely. And I agree we should be all taught uh, probabilities on a more fundamental level through school, not just in like numbers and flipping coins, but like actually how it affects your life and how pretty much we're playing this whole game of life. And I always picture life as it's got, it's branching out into probability trees. All right. So like everything you do, you either increase or decrease probabilities of certain outcomes. So for example, having a routine or doing some mindset work, it's going to increase your probability of having success in a certain avenue. And every decision point almost like branches out to, to certain options. It can be a good or a bad option or somewhere in between. And yeah, I feel, I think for understanding like what, 
because we can understand probabilities from an intellectual point of view. So we can understand like kind of the numbers of it, but to understand how it feels is, is really different. Like it is like that whole, like the brain just doesn't get it. There's like cognitive biases of the brain, which kind of protect this mechanism. And that's why a lot of poker players who are very good at maths, very good at numbers, probably like ace their probability test at school, they start playing poker and they're like, it doesn't feel right. It, I feel really unlucky. It's I'm always getting unlucky. And they're the kind of guys who share their bad beats because emotionally they can't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And I think that's mm-hmm. the, the holy grail of probabilities is understanding not intellectually, but how it feels emotionally. And then watching, like for example, say the, they say you've got 20% equity and you need to call five times and get it right once, all right? And you call it four times and get it wrong, knowing in advance that that's going to feel really bad, all right? The, the, the outcome that you're going to get is going to feel bad, all right? So like when you're calling with low probabilities, it's going to feel bad. When you have high uh, equity and you lose, even though you're going to lose some time, it does feel bad. So I think one of like the big kind of breakthroughs you can make on this is to know it's going to feel bad, to watch the brain kind of go to overreact and call yourself unlucky and then override that with, ah, that's just probabilities. I meant to lose that much. So uh, having this kind of cognitive awareness of the brain trying to overreact to this kind of uh, probability error and its own thinking and actually inject the logic uh, alongside that. And yeah, I think poker players who do it well are really, really good at this, like incredibly good. Like the good players who I work with are very, very rational in amongst extreme validity. All right. And I think that's, that's the key. Like, can you, you got to build this up. This, I don't think anyone's most, well, some people are naturally good at this, but not many. All right. Mm-hmm. Not many. Like anyone you see who's you're like, how can they deal with that variance? Like he probably couldn't when he first started, but he's built that skill set up and up and up and up. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it, like you said, it's something that we should be, would be working on and schools should have taught us better, but they haven't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's your job to pick up the, the slack. Yeah. Yeah, and especially interesting that, you know, there's this theory about the brain in the neurosciences that, that the brain basically has a system, if we look at it from the system's perspective, it, it's basically a predicting machine. It's calculating probabilities all the time. That's all it does, as opposed to the other belief, which is that the brain processes the, processes the information and basically does a binary response. Okay, I had such and such an input, this is going to be the output that I'm, I'm producing. In fact, it's just predicting what's going to happen based on, on your experiences, you know, and that, that's why, you know, rewiring the brain uh, is, is not such an easy part, uh, not such an easy thing, because if the brain is just this black box, which constantly deals with probabilities, it's pretty hard to convince it that, hey, you know what, 90% of the time, this is the desired outcome. So that's how we're supposed to act. It's pretty hard to convince that, you know what, it's not 90-10 anymore. Yeah. It's shifted, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, a topic in itself. I mean, I, we probably shouldn't get into that right now because there are so, so many other things to, to discuss yeah. and neither one of us is a neuroscientist. But um, that's something that I've been recently more and more interested in uh, yeah. because I... You know, once you start thinking about it on a on a deeper level, it's just such a fascinating topic, and uh, I hope to to have uh, one of the leading neuroscientists come on the podcast next year. We already have it scheduled. He is he's busy okay. writing a book right now, which I'm sure is going to be a bestseller, and uh, it's going to be really fascinating. But so let's circle back to. Yeah, that, like I feel like this emotional part, right? There's there's two sides to that coin, obviously. On 
a rational level, it's great for poker players to develop the sort of understanding of the, of the world, seeing the probabilities, feeling the probabilities. Let, let's, let's put it this way, feeling the probabilities. Because as you already explained, and I completely agree that somebody coming in from the math background and on paper, understanding probabilities perfectly, still, do, still doesn't feel too good about losing with aces pre-flop, mm-hmm. right? Even mm-hmm. though, logically, they should be able to just shrug it off and say, yeah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is uh, some people, and I recently had a conversation with somebody who, who basically said that he feels like this experience of playing poker for so long developed him into a sort of well, I don't know how to phrase it, kind of a hard person to be around because for his friends, for example, they would complain about something like, oh, my gym got closed. And he would say, well, this is variance because like, he wants to give them an honest answer, right? Yeah. But this is not the answer they want to hear. This is not the answer they're ready for, right? So very often, some poker players who, who, who really are just trying to be straightforward and honest kind of seem to be very a bit of a dick really because <laughs> you know like you, you you like as a normal person you you complain to somebody like oh you know what life's not good this and this happened you want some sort of empathy you want some sort of like oh yeah you're so unlucky and pat on the back which is probably not what you, what you need but that's maybe what you want what you need is probably the actual real advice from the guy who's going to say, well, you know what, look at it this way. You got unlucky, it's variance, and move on. Keep, keep working, because what else, what else is there? I mean, you can dwell on your unluck for months, but things don't change. Things change with action. But still, you know, poker players rub some people the wrong way. Um, would you agree with that? And And... Do you have any advice for, you know, for people who maybe feel like they're pissing their friends off a bit too often? Yeah, it's it's, it's a good observation, and I agree with it. So uh, if you look at what's happening, poker players build this very rational way of dealing with things. So some of that sparks emotion from someone else. The poker player who's advanced will override that with rational rationale and go, "Oh, that was variance. Oh, why are you complaining about that? That's that's just." Part of what happens so uh, they become they can come a bit heartless to the people or a bit lacking empathy so uh, you've got to look at poker like you're building a very specific skill set for poker which is amazing at like basically rationalizing um, uncertainty now when you go into the real world people aren't ready or looking for that level of um, bluntness a lot of the time so often when people are complaining they're looking for a bit of empathy they're looking for you to listen to them they're looking for so i think poker players have got to be careful not to be too um kind of precise and analytical with their like kind of the way they speak to people and if you are too far down that side the kind of solution to this is you've got to start putting yourself in their shoes a bit more all right so like when you're trying to like relate to people like you're gonna, you're gonna give them the answer that means them to you. But from their framework, that can that can be very arrogant or can be very blunt. A lot of people, when they're saying something, they might just be uh, wanting to be understood, wanting to be heard. So uh, for myself, I built up a very rational mind, and I was I was very um, quick for a long time to uh, point out other people's irrational flaws. And I was rubbing people up the wrong way with this approach. Surprise, surprise! And I realized it was getting the inverse reaction. I meant well. 
but I, I wasn't listening to them. I was just saying what I think they should do uh, based on rational. And that wasn't hitting their framework. So I had to put myself in their shoes and be more empathetic. So often you've got to like do things like, say things like, I understand um, what, and sometimes I rephrase it. Like, if I feel like I know the logical response. I would go, well, what do you think you should do in this situation? Oh, this has happened. I know you didn't want it to. It has happened. Well, how do you think you should deal with it? And I try to be like a bit more of like a mediate role. Um, and I think that's what you've got to do because you've built a skill set as a poker player. They haven't. And when you just go and throw their, your rationale on top, it doesn't work. And the way I look at this is when people are speaking from emotion, they want to have an emotional-based conversation, all right? So emotion listens to emotion. If you just override their emotion with logic, one, they don't hear it, and two, it doesn't get the response you want. So if they're like, I feel really bad about this situation, and you go, well, you shouldn't, because it's just variance, get over it. You haven't heard them. You haven't, they're trying to have an emotional-based conversation, and you just logic down their throat. So I almost imagine like different languages. Logic's like, English emotions like Chinese, let's say. And you can't just bat them with the other language because they're not going to hear it. So if your social interactions are for you to look smart and feel good, awesome, keep going for logic. But if you're actually trying to help this person, you've got to like get into their emotional framework and start to have a conversation based on where they're at. So as poker players, it's hard. So the kind of quick answer is this is not easy because we built up a, a rational way of thinking about situations. But when we're dealing with non-poker players, we've got to be careful not to force that angle onto them. And often put players, what we do is we go, uh, well, they're, they're stupid. Like they're just illogical. They're, they're really illogical. A lot of poker players struggle with relationships because they think their partner's super illogical. Just, she just can't see the logical solution to this situation. And I think that's like what you've got to worry about because we're trying to communicate with people, build relationships in life. And we've got to realize, okay, the skills that you build in poker can actually be detrimental to your ability to form relationships. This, the part of your brain that shuts off emotions as a poker player to deal with variance is great, but you do not run that same program in your personal life. So the way I'm always looking like, you've got to be adaptive. You've got to turn on different attributes of yourself and skill sets in order to balance that. And I'm sure everyone watching this knows a poker player who is just way too analytical, way too uh, uh, abrupt. And as a result, he's not going to build deep connections. So if you value relationships, you value connections, you're going to have to work on this skill set separately. But it's actually going to train you slightly the other way in terms of building that kind of empathy with people. And you've got to be aware that when you go out of the poker avenue and into the real world, and you speak with a non-poker player or a girl or someone who you want to connect with, you trying to serve logic down their face is something that you need to like, yeah, work, work around and start to uh, show more empathy mm. and emotion. Mm. I really like how you made the analogy uh, Comparing, so basically say, well, simplifying it into emotional language and rational language uh, and yeah. setting the divide as if it's like English and Chinese. I think it's a very good framework to look at that because, you know, for a lot of poker players, they feel like not giving the rational response feels disingenuous because they mm -hmm. feel like, okay, I'm not being honest here. I'm just, you know giving them what they want, not what they actually need. But in reality, when you look at it, you're speaking a different language, then it's much easier to understand that, listen, this is not about the, the truth, quote unquote, which you believe is right. They need to hear this. It's about you first need to get on the same level, on the same language, and then you can speak about the truth. And I like your approach also, which you... Um, briefly mentioned that, you know, when, when you're having these conversations with somebody, you would ask questions to them like, okay, so what do you think you should be doing? And I feel like this is, this is a way to 
lead somebody into the realm of rationality if they're ready for it. Because some some people are, are really not ready for it. And I, I think the key word there is is ready for it because I mean everybody can be rational in one one form or, or another, but you know, there is a time and a place, you know, for, for somebody who just experienced some life-changing event or or something like that, perhaps they're not ready to hear the rational thing. Perhaps they they still need to revel or or dwell on uh, on the emotional side of what happened. Yeah, so, yeah. And exactly. By those like kind of small questions, you see if they are ready or not. If they answer that question with a very emotional response, you can see that your logical advice isn't going to hit very well. But if you can guide a few questions, go on. Well, what do you think you should do in this situation? Do you think that's going to help the situation? Like a few little things that you're trying to get them to see reason for themselves. Like you said, some people just aren't ready for it or they don't even want to. Like the, the point of the conversation is for them to vent and get emotions up their chest. They don't want a logical framework solution. So you've got like, I think communication often we can get very lazy and go, you think this, well, I think this, I'm right. It's, that's not how communication works. It's understanding that kind of get on the same page with like the, the language analogy of make sure you speak the same language. And also like as a poker player, you're very logical. So if you can get them to think more logically, you're going to connect very well. So that's what I always do with my, when I'm with, with people, I always go, okay, like if I can get you on a logical framework, we can like, I can connect with you easier because that's my natural style. If I can't, I'm going to have to try different styles myself. I'm going to have to come to your language. All right. This is not going to be natural for me, but I, I've kind of worked on that quite a lot to, uh, to, to be able to speak Chinese, so mm. to speak, um, and speak that emotional language. And the thing is like, the thing with pop players that I don't realize is we've got the same thing in, internally as well. We've got our own emotions and our own logic. And often we bat down our own emotions with logic. So when you're doing this to somebody else and like, say you're the type of person who uh, you'll, you can't deal with emotional people. They say something and you say something logical and it just doesn't go well, or it just doesn't never, never really amounts to nothing. You probably have your own troubles internally with your own emotions, because this is what happens. Like emotions are coming up through you daily and the emotion just wants to be heard, all right? The way I look at emotions, energy and motion passing through that is not acting, asking for a solution, all right? This is really key because we feel emotions. We feel like anger. We feel frustration. We think with our logical minds that that's a problem that needs to be solved. As soon as the mind comes in and starts trying to ruin the problems, all of a sudden that emotional situation just become a mental problem and that we're trying to deal with. And with emotions as power players, we've got this really strong prefrontal cortex that can solve problems, but we need to apply it to the right situations. So when you've got a friend who's coming to you with an emotional problem, you're going, oh, supercomputer, I'll sort that for you. Not the time to use your supercomputer. Like it's not the right framework. And the same with your own emotions. Like if you're doing that with other people, good chance when you feel an emotion, first thing you're going to do is go, this is stupid. I don't need this. So you, you could end up um, kind of suppressing your own emotions as well. So I think pay attention to how you, you, you interact with both of those. Mm. And I wonder now, talking about this internal um, sort of battle between emotions and, and rationality, um, what do you think people dealing with variants um, suppress emotions occasionally, right? Because obviously, especially in-game, being emotional is, is, is probably not a great strategy, especially mm -hmm. long-term. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of people suppress them as opposed to deal with them in other ways. Suppressing emotions just sort of layers them and pushes them somewhere deeper. They're bound to come out because they're not going to just dissipate on their own. Um, do you want to speak a bit about that? I'm really curious about your ideas on 
on this part, you know, of yeah. the emotional aspect of dealing with variants, because, yeah. you know, it, it's been talked a lot about how to do, deal with it rationally and look from the perspective, okay, you just can control uh, the process, so focus on the process, et cetera, et cetera. I've talked about it a lot before. Mm -hmm. You've talked a lot. Of, we, we talked together about it in, in the mm -hmm. first episode. Mm -hmm. uh, but the emotional aspect, I, I don't think I've talked about it much, but I, I feel like it's a, such an important topic because in the end of the day, this is your life. You know, if you mm -hmm. keep suppressing these emotions, obviously they're not going to disappear. They're just going to bound to come out somehow or manifest themselves. The suppression manifests itself in some sort of uh, either disorder or, you know, something like that. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Awesome. Love, love the question. All right. Well, let's have a bit of a framework of where emotions come from and then how we can deal with them in a better way. So the way I look at it, we've got our consciousness, which like sits behind. All right. So we're conscious beings and we have a consciousness. All right. Now our consciousness interacts with the world. All right. We've got our senses, our vision, our touch, and we're constantly bringing in stimulus. That's interacting with our pre-experiences and create a bit of a narrative. All right. So we're, we're going through life in this narrative form because our consciousness is uh, interacting with stimulus. All right. For our senses. Then we've got something else that consciousness interacts with, which is our thoughts. A lot of people don't separate these two. And as a result, consciousness just plays their thoughts. All right. So conscious, we have control of this consciousness, but if you don't do work on it, you end up so in thought that you go from thought to thought to thought to thought. You can't even see the next thought come in because you're just in the next one. All right. So you're, you're too zoomed in. So you, you can't get into it. And then we have our emotions, all right? Our emotional state, generally, which we feel in our body. So there's three things, the world, outside stimulus, thoughts, and your emotions. Those are three things our consciousness can get drawn into. Now, when it comes to emotions, emotions are busy with picking up subtle vibrations, all right? And emotions are just energy passing through you. Now, as we've had a lot of experiences through our lives, we've decided that we like certain feelings and we don't like other feelings, all right? Things that we don't like, we try to do something about, all right? So say a feeling comes to your body, could be you had a bad beat at the poker tables, you feel frustrated or anxious. We have a feeling in our body that we do not like. So you've got generally two things that people do that make a mistake. One, you suppress it and go, I don't want that and push it away. All right. And imagine energy trying to push up. And every time you push it down, it, it almost like notes it. Oh, wait a second. I'll come back stronger next time. It's like a muscle in the gym. It's like, it's not going to go away. It's actually going to come back to a point. This is how people have like kind of accumulation tilt. They'll push it down, push it down, push it down. It's almost like it's slightly rising and gets to a point where something small can blow. You can just blow up from it really small. Your partner will say something and you'll just... It happens all the time. Okay, so suppression doesn't work because we're bottling this motion down. Then we've got the next extreme, expression, where you get angry, you'll shout, you'll rage. So remember, it's energy in motion. So the energy is trying to come through. So if you let that motion come through, what happens? It expresses with high energy, high energy states, anger, rage, tilt. All right, so they're generally the two that we're playing around with. All right, now there's a, there's a middle one. All right, there's a middle one, which is the most important. And this is where you allow the emotion to pass through. This is called like transmuting. Okay, so if an emotion, you feel an emotion and you don't, if you don't suppress it and you don't express it, what would happen to it? If you were sat with the emotion, you'll see the emotion will rise. It'll, it'll feel like sometimes it feels hot, but the emotion will actually pass through. All right, there's, there's, a, there's almost like a purification of an emotion. Most of us don't do this because we're not, we can't deal with certain ranges of emotions. Imagine like the, the orchestra, your, your emotion at your heart is the orchestra. It's playing different notes. Nice notes, like, oh, I like this. This is a nice song. Funeral notes, like, oh, this is sad. This makes me anxious. We don't like the bad ones. So the bad ones are the, the ones we try and do stuff about. The good ones we try to cling. So what we do is when we don't like an emotion, what poker players do almost every time, 
they go, I don't like this feeling. How do I get rid of it? So now this feeling, which let's say the feelings, the Chinese speaking Chinese, whereas the, the logic is English, the English mind goes, you don't like that, 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 you don't like this emotion. Okay, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. So now we've got this Chinese feeling, this riddle of Chinese that's just one to be heard, just one to pass through, and the mind goes, I'll fix that, I'll fix that for you, I'll make you feel better. The mind has amazing, amazing intentions, but it can't solve the problem because it has no clue how to solve this Chinese riddle. So what happens is the mind starts going, well, if we do this, we'll feel better. If we can just get a bit of money back, we'll feel good. If we can just do this, and it tries to come up with all these solutions to this feeling problem, all right? And the mind's, like I said, the mind's got really good intentions. It's just took on a problem that wasn't a fit for it. The emotion wasn't acting, asking for your response, all right? It was asking pass through. Now, what you can do two things, right? So you've got to do two things, basically. One is to get good at feeling emotions in your body and letting them pass through without the mind trying to fix them, all right? That's the ultimate. If you can do that, you'll see how quickly emotions dissipate. If you can watch yourself get angry and not actually get the mind involved and actually act on it, you'll be amazed at how quickly that fizzles out, all right? So that's one avenue. That's the ultimate avenue. If you can't get there, you can go to an intermediate step where your mind rewires the meaning, all right? So we've got stimulus and then the response is the emotion. And the reason that, that emotion feels bad is because we get a big fat label, all right? And I call it meaning, all right? The label's the meaning. If we could change that meaning, we could change that emotional response. So for example, let's say you have a bad beat or you, you, you're running bad and you put the label on it, I'm unlucky, poker is unfair. That, the, the situation itself wasn't unfair and you're not unlucky. You just put a label on it. As a result, that emotion flares up and the mind starts going a bit crazy. If we change that label to uh, this is just variance, this is part of the game, I, I can deal with this, remove that label, all of a sudden that emotion doesn't flare up and the mind goes, oh, there's not a problem to be solved. So changing the meaning stops the mind trying to fix this problem. So the way I look at it, poker players are generally trying to do the mind one. They're trying to change the meaning, but kind of failing in it. Um, and not many work on sitting with emotions, all right? And I've had to spend a lot of time on this myself, where my natural instinct when I feel a negative emotion is to do something, physically move myself and solve it by reframing. I've realized like a quicker fix often is to just sit with that emotion. What is it that I'm actually worried about? Where is this anxiety coming from? What's the deep layers? I mean, you sit with an emotion, it's really interesting. It'll just, it'll tell you everything. It'll be like an insecurity that's just, there you are. Just because I feel insecure about my poker game. I feel like maybe like I'm not gonna make money for the long term. I'm starting to worry about the future and how can I support my family? Oh, interesting. You sit with it, you sit with it. It's amazing how much that can just clear out. Not going, well, I need to do something. I need to make sure the mind is going crazy. So uh, yeah, that's, I think emotions, that's the main thing. To understand their energy expressing itself, you do not want to suppress it and you do not want to express it. Ideally, if you're advanced enough, you want to sit with those emotions. Occasionally you can't because they're too strong. Um, and then if there's a kind of meaning problem, so like say an emotion keeps coming up over and over, it's a consistent trigger event, then you need to change the meaning of that event to something more positive, which will change the kind of trigger stimulus response. And as a result, the mind will get quiet. All right. So the moment, all your problems, like every single problem is caused by the mind, every single one. All right. And once you understand that, you can go, uh, well, the solution is to not get the mind involved as often or to make sure the mind is saying the right things about the right situations. So your response, your emotional response should be in context to the situation. So for example, if a family member dies, that's a bad situation. You want to get sad. You want to have an emotional response relative to that. So that's fine. You want to let the, the emotions play through. It's not like you want to be all happy when things go bad. It's a, it's a good reaction to the, to the situation. On the flip side, you lose the poker tables because he's got a few bad beats and you start raging and, and beating and you're, oh, I'm so, I hate this game, I'm so unfair. 
that's not a logical reaction. That's not an in, in sync reaction. So you've got to work on those reactions. So uh, your emotional responses are get in tune with the stimulus that you're, you're facing. And yeah, that's basically the, the two avenues I, I work on players with. Mm. Wow, there's so much to dig into here. <laughs> Let, let's, I want to recap. I feel like this is such a huge topic and I really like the kind of framework that you put on that. And, and to me, the key parts were, you know, this, this thing of, like you were saying in the, in the, in the beginning, um, when you suppress the emotions and layer them deeper and deeper and deeper, eventually all it takes is a small trigger, just one more tiny, insignificant bad beat or something. And all of a sudden this whole volcano erupts violently, right? And then mm. your mind steps in uh, and tries to fix the problem. Because obviously mm. once the volcano eruption happens, there is a problem. So the mind try, tries to fix it with rationalizing uh, what do we need to do, what, what is going to fix it. And oftentimes it's like, oh, if only I win some money back. You know, mm. And that's where we see people just go into this hole deeper and deeper and deeper, and bo- both emotionally and financially right? Mm-hmm. Which is something that happens over and over again. And everybody's been there. I mean, everybody's been at least at some point point in their career, been in the situation where, yeah, tilt is, is being caused by a small event. And then eventually you try to rationalize it, try to get some money back and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And then another aspect uh, kicks in after you're crossed your threshold for sort of your stop loss, stop loss or something, once you're under that, there's sort of a point of no return where you don't feel like you need to quit now. You're like, well, I already lost way more than I can afford, so I might as well keep playing, which is a complete insanity. But at some point, you know, that this state of mind sets in and I've seen it over and over in people and I know I've been there myself now. Luckily, many, many years ago, not, not, not any time recently, but that's a stupid place to be in because you basically, mm. um, well, inflict a lot of damage on, uh, on, on your work and, and both emotionally, it's not really helpful. And another thing that I want to underline from what you said, uh, which is so, so beautiful and so important, the concept of putting labels on things. And so just changing the meaning, changing the label is indeed the way to deal with these things. Because as, as you outlined, there's basically three ways of dealing with the, with, with the whole um, emotional thing, either expression or suppression or just passing them through. And passing mm-hmm. through, you need to change the meaning. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful framework. And I'm glad that we touched upon it, you know, and another aspect to it, once you're putting the labels, I feel like sometimes to change the label, right? And let's be more concrete. Otherwise, this is, this is quite abstract. So let's, let's imagine uh, we're experiencing bad beat after a bad beat. So one label is we're running really bad and, and this is horrible and life sucks, mm-hmm. right? And then when the brain starts to think, okay, is there a problem? What is the problem needs to be fixed? And how do we fix it? Oftentimes what helps to change that label of is there a problem or not is to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. Is this one session really that important? 
like what is the bigger picture here? What is the impact of this one session, even if you lost 20 binds in that session? What is the impact of that session overall on your career? Looking into the future or putting yourself in the future and imagining yourself looking back at that day that you are in now, would it really be that impactful? And if the answer is yes, it, it is an absolutely most horrible thing that happened to me. I lost 20 binds. Guess what? You're probably playing above your stake. You're probably not rolled for the game. You probably made some decisions, bad decisions, leading up to that point. And they have nothing to do with running bad. They have everything to do with you making decisions that you shouldn't have made. You're not following the bankroll management. You're you're not being a professional, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I agree with that. And I think that what you touched on there is really powerful perspective. Like the lens we look through is so, so important. And often as poker players, we kind of live and die by the sword on a daily basis, which is just stupid. And you're basically letting the external events of one day or a few days impact how you feel about poker, how you feel about life, how you feel about your self-worth. And it's just because you're zoomed in. Essentially, you're used to looking at a zoomed-in lens. So you've got to train yourself over and over to take a more zoomed-out lens, all right? And the simple starting point for this, guys, is literally stop checking your short-term results. Literally check your results once a week max, uh, once a month if you want to go for a more advanced, unless you're like shooting a new stake and you haven't got a sample size. You want to get, you want to train yourself to stop looking at the short term and trying to figure out patterns. Because like you said before, the brain's a pattern recognition machine. So on a daily graph, you look at your daily results, the brain's going to look at that. And if you've lost money, it's going to try and figure out why. Oh, I must have done this wrong. No, this bad. It's going to start making up all these things. Remember the brain's trying to get you back to equilibrium. It's trying to recognize patterns. And it's going to see patterns that aren't there. You could easily solve that problem just by zooming out and looking at your month results. All right, and go, no, wait a second. Is that actually a problem that needs addressed? Is there something to worry about in my game fundamentally? Oh no, I've said a bad few days. I'm still doing well, quite well this month. Okay, cool. We can end the conversation there because there's no, there's no patterns to spot. So I think often we, uh, a lot of poker players get very addicted to checking their results very often. All right, like every time I work with players, I, I stop this like instantaneous, like day one, because uh, I know the effect it has on your mindset. You can, you can be like very, very good at like dealing with stuff and processing stuff, but you're giving yourself a really, really tough job of going, brain, look at these short-term results. It means nothing. I know there's a lot of money going up and down. Don't read into it. Your brain doesn't do that. Your brain does read into it. Your brain does. So you've got to feed it the right thing. So feed it the bigger sample size. And I love what you said, because I do this exactly, exactly the same. Um, I think I got this exercise from Tim Ferriss, actually, a number of years ago, where he says the question something like, uh, imagine yourself five years in the future. Would you remember this situation? And very often the, the answer is no, all right? But if it is yes, on a scale of one to 10, how big of an impact has this had on your life? Again, over the course of the last five years, all the events that have happened in the last five years, very quickly, and like, like I said, unless you're playing way over your role, unless you're so far gone down the bank, bad bankroll management, you're going to say, no, I won't remember it. It's going to be super insignificant and it's going to be very low on the pain threshold. Okay, cool. Can you deal with that from that framework? Because what we do is we live in a world where we blow everything up. Everything's a big deal because we're zoomed in. So uh, imagine like you're you've got a year's results, right? And a year results goes from zero to 100,000, all right? And it looks super smooth for a year. But if you zoom into a month, there's some ups and downs. You zoom into a, a week, there's some like really big chops. You do a day graph, a day graph can go straight line down. Now, if you're looking at straight line down, you're going to read things into that. So you've got to, you've got to train yourself, go, wait a second, what's the, what's the sensible perspective to take? And generally, it's always 
just go further back. All right. Like obviously you want to, you want a sample size that's relative. You don't want to look at a 10 year sample size and be down for a year, but you want to take a, a, a lens that makes sense. And you want to train the brain to look for patterns only where patterns exist. And that's one of the things that pro players don't do very good. They, they use short-term results as a feedback loop when they're not. Mm-hmm. And another thing that happens, uh, which is probably not an insignificant thing, but it's, it's a bit um, on a different topic now, but for just checking the graph, one thing that happens emotionally, let's say when you're checking that graph for a year, you know that the impact of your today's session on the graph is not going to be huge. So it's, there's sort of nothing to take away from that. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's just a fact. When you're looking at a day's graph, the impact of your actions is tremendous because you basically can draw a graph. Right, and I often keep saying that we are not in a graph building business; we're in a money making business. Hopefully, yes. right? And I feel like one of the negative aspects of people checking their graph on a daily basis, or worse yet, mid session, is that they see a pattern, which is not even a pattern. It's just random noise, to be honest, in a, in a span of mm-hmm. you know a small sample. But because if, especially if you check your results several times during the session, you see the impact of individual hands on the graph Mm -hmm. reflected. Mm -hmm. So next time you're in a hand, at least on some level, you're thinking about, okay, how is this going to affect my graph? What is going to be the effect on the graph? Which is a stupid thing to do because that's the the last thing you should, should be thinking about. Think about your decision. Is that a good decision or not? And I feel like a lot of people, and I speak from experience as well, because I, I know I did it before, when, especially when you're running bad, and running bad in a way that really under EV, because we love that graph, right? We love the graph of EV and, and, and the other line is like, oh, there's a big divide. Look, there's some sort of narrative. I'm, I'm like being unlucky and as if there is a medal for that somehow, right? <laughs> And when you see that big divide between the EV and the reality, you're in the hand and you know what impact it's going to have on the graph. Let's say you have a choice of, okay, do we flip it or do we call play turn and then potentially we're drawing dead and it's not going to create even bigger gap because all of a sudden when we start liking the gap, Increasing the gap doesn't feel too bad, which is ridiculous because increasing the gap means you're losing, but it doesn't feel too bad because you're like, well, I lost, but at least the graph looks even cooler now, right? Mm. Which is stupid. And at the same time, if we win, the graph is still going to be pretty cool because, you know, okay, now we're sort of getting back to EV. So you come to a situation where both outcomes seem positive to you, even though they're not. And it also clouds your judgment because you might prefer the flip as opposed to playing the turn and potentially getting your money in, drawing dead, but for the most part, getting it with like 80% equity, which is a desirable outcome, especially if you can also make some plays on the turn, right? So you're, you're clearly increasing your EV by playing the turn, so calling the, the, the flop and, and playing the turn, as opposed to just going for a flip. 
Whereas if you're in that graph building mentality, you're very often just going to lean towards, okay, it's a flip, it's, it's cool. Whatever happens, it's going to be good for, for the graph. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, I haven't even thought about this one in all honesty, but now you've said it, it's definitely an important thing. And what's happening there is the brain's building like a defense mechanism. So you've separated a certain amount from EV to your actual, and at first it hurts a lot. And you're like, I run by, and you, you tell a few victim stories of how you're the unlucky guy. And then you start to feed into it. So the ego wants to be the very best or the very worst. All right, so there's kind of a little bit of ego in, I run worse than anyone. I'm the guy who always gets bad beats. And all of a sudden your brain's trying to protect you. And the reason your brain's trying to protect you is because you can't handle the, the negative emotion that comes with the, the foot running bad. So your mind's going to go, well, I'm just going to run even more. I'm going to run even worse. I'm going to run the, the worst out of anybody. And you now turns up into the narrative to protect yourself. So just think about that, right? Like anytime you're thinking about the impact your decision is going to have on your graph, over like what's the max EV of that spot or what's the best line to take. Just think how far away you're deviating from the best poker. Just think like if, the, if your graph's ever in your head, you're in a hand, you, you're going so far away from your best poker. Like you are not uh, playing your best, all right? You, 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 you are better. Like as a poker player, you are so much better. So I think you've got to, like you've been saying, like this is a conditioning thing that we do. If you're checking your graph many times during a session, you're building these narratives like, like we talk about the brain is the brain's building these pattern recognition. If you're giving it data, it's like data in, data out. If you're going, look at my graph after two hours, look after four hours, the mind's trying to make sense of it. And it's going, well, I run the worst out of anyone. Or what is the situation? Let's make something up to make you feel better. Give it better data. Give it better things to work with. Don't give it that um, impossible task of look at this data. It looks like there's patterns, but none of them mean anything. Um, just don't don't make any patterns because it's going to. So I think this is like a really big thing to to be aware of. And if you're the guy who's either trying to make yourself um, yeah get attached to your graph in any way, you've just got to like train yourself to check longer sample sizes. Um, and you've got to do it by seeing the seeing the illogical nature of it. All right. Often when I work with players, I do exactly the same as what I did with the emotional problem. I ask them questions and I go, oh, do you think your graphs have any impact? Like day to day, do you think your graphs show how well you play? And very quickly they go, not really. Does checking your graph during a session make you a better poker player? Or does it make you a worse poker player? Go, oh, it makes me worse. I get, I get a bit anxious when I'm losing. Okay, and we, you start to see logically that there's a, there's a cause-effect relationships of doing something very simple. Like a lot of poker players, I found this myself as well, refreshing graphs mid-session. Um, just try, Because we're trying to see, like, am I doing good? We want some, like, validation. And also it's quite, like, addictive to go, am I going up? Am I going down? Especially if you're playing, like, high stakes and stuff. So uh, I think we've got to break that cycle and realize that the, the brain's going to make patterns that aren't there, give ourselves better data, and break that pattern of checking if you're, if you're habitually checking your results. Mm. What do you think works the best for somebody who is checking their graph on a regular basis? Like, what is the one thing they can do to sort of stop that behavior? Because it's it's basically a habit. It's a bad habit, yes. but it's a habit, you know. And oftentimes people just do it uh, without realizing they're doing it. Yeah, their their HUD yeah. is somewhere there in the background, and you know the mouse just slides down there, and yeah, oh, we see the graph. Yeah. You know, yeah. what, what advice do you have for people to, to stop that behavior? All right. So first of all, you need incentive to stop. All right. So if you see it, there's this harmless little thing of checking your graph. You're not going to have the incentive to stop. If you start to draw an alarm on it and go, wait a second, this is costing me money. This is making me a worse poker player. This is creating anxiety. This is really having a negative impact on my life. I want to stop this. All right. So we need more to break the habits. Second, so first of all, get the motive, understand there is consequences of checking this graph. 
Second thing, we've got to build awareness to the habits. How often are you checking? And when are you checking? Are you checking once a day, twice a day, three times? In what time? Spend a week or a few days if you want to work on this habit in quick time. Write in how many times you checked. Maybe you forget and you checked three times a day. Write at the end of the day how many times you checked and at what time of day. So you want to, you want to build a little bit of a pattern of when you're checking, when your triggers are. Is it after you've lost a part? Is it a certain time of day? Is it before lunch? Figure out your patterns. And then also write down how you felt after you checked. All right. So what I like to do is build that kind of the consequence of action. So when you are checking, um, basically, what, how does it make you feel? And very often, people will be like, may feel nothing or it made me feel negative. It's a generally neutral or negative. It's very rarely, I feel amazing because I checked my results. Because when you're winning, you generally don't need that incentive from the, the graph anyway. So build awareness of the habits. And then you've got to start going, okay, I'm going to consciously uh, stop myself. All right. So when you're trying to change pattern the habits, you can do a few things. One, you can use conscious willpower, which is the hardest thing. Two, you can say, okay, I'm going to control my environment, which makes it easier for me not to check. So one thing you could do is just mess up all your filters on your photo tracker, set them all for month graphs, change all the numbers. So if you wanted to check your day results, you have to go into photo tracker and change everything around. All right. So just knock off the default settings. So you can't check daily. All right. And the more you can fiddle around with that, the better have like yeah, whatever you need to do to change that. But I think often it's a habit loop, right? It's not like if you clicked on it and your results came up for the month, not that many people go, okay, well, some people would, but you'd break the habit of going, well, what's my results? Make it hard for yourself to do the bad behavior. Every time you don't check, reward yourself, all right? So like over the course of time, you want to go from, say, checking multiple times a day to checking once a day to checking once a week, all right? So you've got to keep data. When I'm trying to change habits, I like to gamify it, all right? So I'm like, okay, week one, you checked your graph 21 times, all right? How did it make you feel? Oh, not good, okay, right? Can we get that down to 15 this week, all right? And see the impact. And what you'll do is you'll start lowering that number and you'll start realizing, wait a second, didn't actually change my life in a negative way. Actually, I feel a bit better. And then once you can start to remove the habit and you can see some positives from that, all of a sudden, like you can actually break that habit over time. And then you get a new default, all right? So if you're checking multiple times a day, you're not going to go to check in once a month. It's just not going to happen. You might go check once at the end of the day to begin with. Then you might go, okay, I'm going to check twice a week, once on a Thursday and once on a Saturday. So there's multiple avenues. First, get them order right. Second, get very aware of the habit loop you have and the trigger events. Third, make it very hard to check your, to, 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 to do the habits, either change all the filters or if you want, like get, like don't have it even up, even up, but you generally need it for a poker tracker and stuff. And then fourth, gamify it and try to lower that number week by week and reward yourself every time you keep it lower. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I like it. I like it because basically you're, you're forcing an unconscious habit or you're forcing to recognize an unconscious habit and put some thought into it because every time you check the graph now, you're forced to note for yourself uh, in mm -hmm. some shape or form that, hey, I did this. I did it one time, two times, etc. And also I like the approach of making it harder for yourself, you know, because it's so easy to click that one button to pull up uh, the tracker. It's much harder to pull up the tracker than change the filters. Yeah. Because that's yeah. basically... You know, the first step was the unconscious one and just a, yeah. a, a habit that is is pretty pretty hard to to kill off, sort of. Yes. But yeah. you know, once you're stepped over there and you see, ah, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm not checking the yeah. graph because that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. And another thing that I wanna mm, point out is, you know, you've mentioned that well, if you check the graph and it's negative, uh, it's gonna be a bad impact on you, most likely. But if you check the graph and it's positive, it's like, yeah, whatever. There's no impact. I feel like 
for a lot of people, there's a bad impact from checking the graph when it's positive as well, because what's going to happen, especially if it's really positive, let's say all of a sudden, it because it, again, it comes back to this, this emotional aspect of sort of drawing the graph. The graph looks super good. You might make some optimal decisions because you don't want the graph to look worse. You know, it's one of those situations when you're up 10 buy-ins after 15 min minutes in a session, you feel really compelled to quit, even though it's like you've played 20 minutes, really. Like your session is supposed to be like three hours or something or four hours or whatever it is for you. But so many people feel the urge to just quit after that initial spur, even though when we're on a downswing, you set out to play four hours, like eight hours later, you're still battling to get the money back. Right, which yes. is a complete insanity because, you know, if, again, if you zoom out in a long enough time span, the, these 15 minutes in the beginning of your session, they're meaningless. Mm -hmm. You know, unless you're willing to play 15 minutes and quit for the year, you know, then it <laughs> yeah. makes no sense to quit after another five minutes. But what happens is once you start dwelling and being too invested in the graph, it actually emotionally hurts mm. to continue playing. And that's a really bad spot to be in because all of a sudden, every little dip in the graph feels like a, a little piece of you was taken out, like a little dagger uh, hurting you. So I, I believe like even checking the graph when it's real beautiful still has a negative impact on your game and on your emotions specifically because, uh, I mean, everybody experienced uh, how painful it is to ruin a perfectly beautiful graph right <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah and then you'll reinforce that with a story like i should have stopped i knew oh, i yeah. should have stopped yeah yeah absolutely so and I then the next time you, these emotions of negativity around the whole situation are even stronger because you yeah. now you also have that experience of oh, i would remember what happened before and yeah, once again, exactly. your, your brain is a predictive kind of mechanism and it, and it mm -hmm. sort of puts two and two together and says well it's time to quit the session because you know what happened yeah. last time. It yeah. didn't go well, you know, yeah. and and we're naturally wired more strongly towards avoiding the bad outcomes as opposed to chasing the good outcomes. So, you know, it might take you one time of this bad experience and that's going to stay with you for a long time. And four times of good experience might not offset it enough. You still might feel the bad, bad emotions. And what, do you, what would you say to somebody who's going to claim that, you know what, I'm checking the graph after every big pot or something, and it has no effect on me. Do you think that's possible? Or is it just fooling yourself? I'd say 95% of the time, it's fooling yourself. And let's say you, you, are, you think you are that guy, you can check after every part and it doesn't affect you. I would ask you, why do you feel the need to check? All right, if it's not affecting you, because the mind's not, we're not stupid. We're not doing things that don't get rewarded or there's like a positive incentive of it. So if you weren't getting a positive incentive from checking that in some way, you wouldn't check. So I would say, okay, if that doesn't affect you, why do you feel the need? Can, can we remove that? Because it doesn't affect you anyway. So you get no up and no down. So, so why are you wasting time clicking the button? Because you don't gain anything from it. So can mm. we break it? So I'd, I'd question that assumption, um, especially if it's that impulsive to check it often. And you might go, oh, well, it makes you feel good. I feel, I feel good about it. So we're going, okay, there's, 
we can quickly see there's an attachment to short-term results. So you're saying you've got an attachment to short-term results and you're unaffected by those. I'd, I'd call bullshit and go, okay, yeah. I think... <laughs> I think there's a strong attachment and you're probably either you've suppressed it enough that you, you can't see it or you uh, yeah, so, some way of fooling yourself, but almost certainly that's having a uh, negative impact. All right. So mm. every time you click on that graph and see it, you're missing information on the poker tables. You're choosing to look at a, a data point that has zero relevance to the hand you're in, to the games you're playing. Like why would you constantly keep giving yourself that information? Even if you were someone who could theoretically not be affected by it, like, why are you wasting time on something that's not relevant? You know what I mean? It's that kind of analogy. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that approach a lot. Uh, just asking the why. Because mm -hmm. whenever somebody is doing an action and saying, well, it has no effect on me, the question is, why are you doing it? You know, if it yeah. really has no effect on you, like, why? And it's hard to imagine what is the positive from checking the graph. I still yet to hear somebody explain to me like, well, you know what? I'm getting this out of that. Yeah. And I don't care about what you're getting from it. I, I don't believe there's any positive impact on your game. When you're playing, the game is what matters, you know? Because yeah. somebody might tell me, you know what? The positive impact for me of watching a movie while I play is such and such. Mm. it's clearly nonsense because, well, whatever the imaginary positive impact there is, you're losing so much uh, of your focus from what you're supposed to be uh, zooming in on, which is your game. And it's crazy to think there's still so many people out there who would be, you know, while they play, they would have their social media they would be scrolling mindlessly through that. They would have YouTube videos. They would have all sorts of things. And the question is like, what, what the hell are you doing? Don't, don't you see the impact? Well, to be honest, yeah, the answer is yes, they don't see the impact. They don't mm -hmm. see the impact because it's hard to compare. Um, how is it? Because another thing what happens is a lot of people get bored. Like, oh, I don't have anything on the side. I just have three tables. It's boring. Yeah. Anyway, wow, that's so many things that I'm glad we touched upon. There's another question I have that is really related to all of the things that we discussed right now and also related to the COVID situation, which is the topic of rewards and giving yourself rewards, right? Because we've, we've talked a lot about emotions and, and dealing with them and, and, and dealing with their uncertainty and probabilities. And oftentimes, rewards are integral part of all, the, all those frameworks because eventually you have to give yourself some sort of a reward and uh, you have to see the light somewhere. You have to see the meaning um, in what you do. So first of all, I want to talk about this in general terms and then also think about it more in the light of COVID, because obviously a lot of the rewards which people had for themselves, let's say, oh, you know what, I'm gonna do such and such a thing, and then eventually I'm going for for this super nice trip, or I'm going for this experience or that experience. A lot of this has been taken away from people, mm -hmm. and now you're sort of bound to to confinement in, in a way, and uh, it makes 
you know, it, it creates a new struggle. And even people who had a good system for rewarding themselves and looking forward to something in their in their game, in their career, are probably struggling to to continue because, well, those rewards have been forcibly taken away from them. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on, on this? And, and this is a huge, huge topic, mm-hmm. obviously. So yeah. I, I wonder where this is going to lead us, but I'm, I'm really yeah. interested to discuss it. Yeah. All right. So let's look at the reason why we do anything. We do it because you want to get something from it or we want to avoid pain. All right. So Terry, move away from pain, go towards pleasure. So when you're on the poker pursuit and you're trying to achieve goals, generally financial, play high stakes, have a good lifestyle, you're doing that because you think the effort you're going to put in is going to get a justifiable reward. All right. So we're trying to we're trying to fix like um, this equation. How much effort do I put in to get what reward at the end of it? All right. So uh, very often we get stuck in an external trap. What I mean is we think that this external reward later down the line is going to solve all our problems. All right. So if we look at what's going on in the brain, the chemical or the neurotransmitter that gets released is dopamine. You guys will be aware of dopamine because it gets used in social media context. It's the thing that keeps us clicking, but it's basically the reward molecule. All right. So uh, when we're on a pursuit of a goal, let's use the analogy of trying to reach high stakes poker from low to mid stakes. You're going on a pursuit, which is very difficult. You're having to study, you're having to grind, work on your lifestyle, maybe have a mental coach. You're really putting in work to become a better version of yourself so that you can achieve these external things. Now, there's a, the, your mind's constantly going to go, is the effort worth the reward? Is the effort worth the reward? And basically, uh, you want to build a fuel yourself for a long time, all right? So you don't want to burn out. So a lot of people go on this journey for success and they burn out along the way. The reason they burn out is because they don't reward themselves along the way. All right. So uh, this is called reward prediction error. Okay. So uh, imagine I want to reach high stakes poker and I'm playing low stakes and I I don't reward myself internally because it's an an internal thing you do, which I'll I'll talk about. I won't allow myself to feel good. Meaning I won't allow myself to have a flood of dopamine until I reach high stakes. I'm going to work my ass off. I'm really going to grind. And when I get there, maybe I got hundred K in the bank and I stop in high stakes, then I'm going to feel really good. What we've done there is told the brain there's going to be an absolutely monumental amount of effort needed. And at the end, there's going to be an unbelievable amount of pleasure, an unbelievable amount. Okay, so you've tricked the brain to go in. If you keep going, if I keep whipping you, you're going to unlock Pandora's box and you're going to get flooded. Now, what's going to happen? You're going to get there and you're going to get a reward, but it's going to be like an empty box. It's going to be only a small amount of dopamine. You're going to be like, what? And the brain instantly goes, that was not worth it. This is why you see people have success in one thing and they can't go again because they push themselves so hard and the reward was hollow. So this is a pursuit you don't want to do. You don't want to like reward yourself at the end. So what you need to learn to do is reward yourself on in steps along the way. So uh, dopamine is something that we reward by our intrinsic feeling of we're making progress. Okay. So uh, if I'm chasing my goals and I reward myself, not just because when I reach it, but I reward myself for the effort I put in, I can release dopamine every day. I can, I can go to bed with a high amount of dopamine just because I've rewarded myself for putting effort that was correlated with my goals. So what you need to do is go, where am I trying to get to in life? Let's say three chai sticks poker is the example again. Every time you make a step towards that, whether it's a meditation habit, whether it's a two-hour grinding session or a two-hour study session, every time you make that effort, if you intrinsically spend between 10 to 20 seconds to give yourself a pat on the back, well done, I'm moving forward towards my goal, that resets or it tops up your dopamine, it releases a bit of dopamine, which allows you to feel energized on your pursuit, all right? So this is key. Anyone trying to uh, 
You don't just wait for the external. So to use your example of the current situation, you don't just work hard for the holiday. You, you have the holiday in mind, but on the way, you give yourself little nuggets of reward. Now, some people mess this up still, like the go-getters, they kind of drive 100% uh, in one direction. They mess this one up because they burn out dopamine. What I mean by that is it's, dopamine's the, the more molecule. There's a great book called The More Molecule if you guys want to get into dopamine. But basically, where it's always seeking, always having more, always wired to go and chasing something. Now, that system needs a break at times. It needs to recharge. It needs to reset itself. So if you're someone who goes, I'm, I don't need days off. I don't need any time off. I'm just going to grind, study, work. I'll sleep five hours. I'm just going to go for it. You can actually get away with this more in your early 20s. I think I got away with this in my early 20s. We've got a higher dopamine threshold, so we can push the dopamine system more, the reward system. But then you get to a point, generally, as you age, we burn this out. We burn this out, we crash and burn. Almost all the guys I've worked with who do not learn to recover, rest, and they end up burning out their dopamine and they have crashes, big crashes. So we've got the dopamine system, which is we want it one ahead. It's like fueling our pursuit for our goals. And we want to be rewarding ourselves for effort. I'm putting effort every single day towards my goals. Then we've got the other inverse system, which is again the refueling system, which is serotonin. Now, if we if we push hard with uh, dopamine, we need to make sure we get adequate serotonin to reset the dopamine system. So having days off, so serotonin is basically like a happy molecule. It's actually a, a neurotransmitter that gets released when we feel like we have enough, all right? We're settled in our environment. So meditation is great for it. Time in nature, exercise is great. It releases serotonin. And yeah, spending time with people and friends and just being more present, increase serotonin. So if you're a hard-headed go-getter going for rewards, you've got to balance that with serotonin. And I had, I realized massive, massive jumps in my life when I stopped trying to get myself to just go, 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 go based on rewards. And I started going, wait a second, there's another system that doesn't, it's not easing off. It's not being complacent. It's not giving up on life. It's the inverse. It's like refueling the car. It's like you're driving 100 miles an hour in the serotonin is the refuel that allows you to go for 10 years rather than one year. And gratitude as well. Daily gratitude practice uh, tops up serotonin. So to kind of bring it all back to like how you think about rewards, often we only reward ourselves with external things. The holiday, the money, the, the the big thing, the big thing. And that's like the, that's putting all your dopamine in one big outcome. And you're not, you're hoping that's going to be worth all the efforts. You're going to whip yourself, whip yourself, get it. Every day you should be giving yourself rewards for making effort towards your goals. Don't be delusional. Don't give yourself effort for watching, uh, sorry, reward for watching Netflix. Don't like, it's not positive self-talk. It's you actually made some effort, whether it's big or small, and you're gonna allow yourself to feel good for that effort because you know in the long term, putting those efforts in adds up. It's going in the right direction of your goals. If you can do that, you don't need that big external reward. It's gonna be good when you get it. Uh, so yeah, this is called um, reward prediction error. So if you put all your eggs in one basket at the end, you end up very disappointed because it's not enough. If you give yourself uh, rewards for effort every single day and every single week, when you get that reward at the end and you, you do achieve your goals, it's relative to what you were expecting. It feels good, but you got a lot of pleasure on the way. This is like when people talk about, like, trust the process, get in touch with the process. What people don't talk about is the, what's going on in your brain and why it's so important. It's the process and taking kind of um, pleasure in the process tops up this dopamine, which fuels you to keep going. And then when that car's going to burn out, you've uh, refueled with serotonin, with time in nature, meditate and gratitude, and that allows you to pursue rewards over and over. So uh, the big mistake I see in poker is people put the external reward, the big one, on a big pedestal, all right? And they're like, 
when I get that, then everything's going to be great. It could be the holiday. It could be the financial freedom if you want to go super deep or super big. Um, and they, they almost like punish themselves till they get there. It's all about harder work, harder work, harder work. And that's literally like you're, you're fueling yourself. You're not giving yourself the fuel. You're almost like pushing yourself with willpower. Most will break. If you're someone who's very disciplined and you can actually pull that off against the odds, you can whip yourself and get there. Like, fair play for doing that, you'll get there and you'll be super disappointed. You'll be super disappointed because this box is empty. Well, not empty, but you're a little bit of dopamine, but not the most. So uh, yeah, the way I look at it is if you're feeling a bit hollow right now or like your your goals have been taken away from you, start to connect a bit more um, kind of enjoyment in the process day-to-day, all right? Forget the long-term, get your kind of enjoyment from your day-to-day efforts. And then also top of your serotonin. Start to feel a bit more content in yourself. Daily gratitude practice, a bit more time in nature. So all of a sudden you're not feeling like I'm this empty shell who needs to get somewhere to get rewarded. I'm pursuing my goals and get rewarded for that pursuit. And life's pretty good anyway. And if you can balance those two perfectly, all of a sudden you won't burn out. You'll have a very, very long career, which allows you to get to to bigger goals. Mm. And once again, there are so many things I want to underline here because... So yeah, let me basically summarize first, and then I have some follow-up things where I want to get into. But um, this idea of the hollow reward, of that empty box, the big box, Mm -hmm. the one that you're shooting for, it comes up over and over again. I see it in, 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 in so many, not only poker, obviously it's universal, but oftentimes, you know, people who strive, especially the ones who strive, okay, I'm going to get to the high stakes. Whatever that means for you. you know, for some people, high stakes are the really high stakes. For some people, it's just the sort of well, it's high enough sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing intrinsically beautiful about getting there. It's not some sort of a destination where you have somebody waiting for you with, with a little uh, reward. You know, there's, there's no medal. You get there you're still you. Nothing really changed. Like you're not going to all of a sudden and that's another thing, putting a label on yourself of, hey, I'm a high stakes player right now. What does that label mean? What does it mean? Like what changed from when exactly did that day happen? When did you switch from a mid stakes player to a high stakes player? When did this transition happen? Is it like an identity thing? Really? You're a high stakes player? Okay. So how are you different from a mid stakes player? What are the things, you know? So it's putting these labels is is really dangerous. It's really dangerous, especially from a perspective of somebody puts a label on this, I'm a high-stakes player. They're very unlikely to move down when they need to because guess what? That goes against their identity. I'm not playing those stakes. I'm a high-stakes player. And what very often happens is, uh, well, we all know what happens. It's just, you know, you you basically, you go busto and then you have a cool story to tell of like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I... I'm going to run it up again yeah. in mid stakes because now I'm a run it up to the high stakes label guy. You know, that's what yeah. I'm doing now. Well, it's it's just so ridiculous, this whole notion of constricting yourself with unnecessary labels, which are meaningless, especially. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. anyway, so I, I went off on a tangent here. But um, yeah, so this this idea of not rewarding yourself on a regular basis, not, not having these step rewards, it really hurts a lot of people. And another thing that really hurts a lot of people, which you also mentioned in the context of burning out, is not taking days off mm. or taking a vacation. Mm. And a day off is also like a vague concept. 
for some people, a day off is when they um, didn't play at all. For some people, it's when they didn't play more than two hours. For some people, it's when they didn't switch on the lobby. For some people, when they did nothing poker-related, right? So there's different categories of days off. And obviously, days off are so important. Yet from so many people that I know, poker players struggle with taking a day off because... You know, in a, in a regular career, you have the nine to five, Monday to Friday in most jobs in most countries, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole structure, obviously not in COVID times, but before the whole structure is, is pretty straightforward. Now is my day off. All of my friends have a day off. So, well, we're going to do something social. We're going to do this. I'm going to do that. There's an event. There are always, events always on Saturday or whatever on, on Friday, poker player might take a day off on Tuesday. And then what? They don't have a plan. They don't have a set uh, structure. And most likely, they don't have a day off every Tuesday. It's not like a set routine. So every time you approach the day off, you sort of have to make decisions on the fly of what am I doing? Unless you actually have like a proper hobby that you're really looking forward to. Like, oh, I like skiing. So that's what I'm going to do on my day off. Really looking forward to it. I like sailing. I like kite surfing, whatever, you know. But the poker players, yeah, we, we struggle a lot with just, okay, let's take a day off, first of all. And second, let's enjoy it. Let's make it enjoyable. Let's make it good. Do you, do you see the same and... Well, first of all, yeah. Do, do you see the same problem with, with the people that you work with? Do, do they struggle with having a meaningful day off? Yeah, so uh, let's look at it. Like poker players in general can work almost any times, any day. To take a day off, you've got to sacrifice earnings. You've got to go no ROI for the day. And like I said, it could be any day because you don't sit, stick to a schedule. It's not going to be fitting into other people's social lives. So every week you've almost got on the fly, should I take a day off? And if I did, what would I do? So a lot of players like have intentions to take days off, but they don't. And with days off, you've got to realize, okay, like just thinking of yourself as a finely tuned machine. All right. And you've got to realize that you're making so many high level decisions. And there's a point where you need to recharge that system. All right. You need to recharge yourself. Okay. And I would say almost everyone should have one full day off a week. All right. I know it's difficult. I know for poker players, it's challenging to think what to do with that. And that day off can vary like literally anything you want. Like I said, any hobby you've got is ideal, but you basically want to spend a day not running that cognitive analytical thinking machine that you have. You want to do things that recharge you, spend time in nature, outdoors with friends, uh, spend a bit more time internal, journaling, anything that you enjoy, like an enjoyment day. That's what I would, I would classify it as. And the thing is like the weird, like you said, you've actually got to plan this. If you have a day off, like I used to do this myself, a day off with no plan, what happens? You get your laptop out, you go, I've got a bit of YouTube. Oh, may as well do a little bit of grinding or I'll look at some poker videos. That's not a day off. Like you've just literally, you start your computer probably six, seven hours still. You haven't recharged yourself, right? You've still kept yourself going. So it's not just a day off poker. It's a day off like almost like doing something different to recharge yourself. And you've got to, you've got to figure out for yourself what would do that. Okay. So there is like certain things that, like I said, get outside, uh, time in nature, 
meditating, exercising, doing anything outdoors is going to be good. But you've got to find out for you and you've got to get into that rhythm for yourself. So uh, I push back on anyone who says they don't need days off. All right. So uh, I have had guys who've been adamant that they didn't need days off. And as I've observed them over larger sample size, surprise, surprise, they always burn out. They always have that like in a three-day crash. They don't class as a three-day crash. They're like, oh, I got sick and I had a something happened, I, I can't grind for three days. Like, oh, you got sick, they did, okay, that's, that's not a surprise. Like, it, it happens often off, over and over. So uh, you've got to stop thinking of these days off as like a weakness. It's actually a plus point. So I think the people who struggle to, day, to take days off are high achievers who want to have success quick. You've got to realize that this recovery is part of that model. It's actually essential, all right? And once you start to uh, look at high performers, they are masters of recovery. You look at like an athlete like LeBron James, just won the uh, NBA championships today, He's like a master of recovery. He's like literally spends over, he spends 1.5 million per year on his recovery, on sleep experts, optimizing his environment, making sure his body is fueled. He plays hard as hell on the court, but if recovery allows him to. So with your brain, you want to make high level decisions. If you don't recover, what happens is you end up being this like very monotone, almost like always at a decent level, but never great. Like you can't get that creative in the floor, in the zone moments because you're just too burnt out. There's just not enough energy available. And you'll find like, Force a day off. Like, so for some of you guys, you're going to be like, yeah, sounds good in theory, Adam, but like, I just can't. You've almost got like a force yourself to take a day off and plan something. So when I started doing this myself, I was like super high volume guy, super over elite. Every day off felt like not a chance. I had to plan something. I had to book somewhere to go. I had to plan a, a trip to somewhere, like to stay somewhere away from my computer to actually get me to go there. In those days, I didn't do that. I ended up on my computer. And I can remember going, oh, oh, it's supposed to be a day off. Oh, sh- oh shit, here I am again. Okay, so you've got to, and once you start taking days off and you realize when, when, when it really sunk home for me, the day after my days off, I was super creative. I had really good ideas. I was really motivated. I played really good poker and I was like, ah, when you said there's something in that recovery, I still felt like it was a weakness at first, but once you realize, okay, I actually need these things and you got to plan them. It's very personal for you. Right now, I have a very specific uh, recovery protocol where one day a week on a Sunday, I go and spend time in nature. I drive like an hour away. I go to a flotation tank, which fully relaxes my body. And I spend the time chilled, generally fully off social media. For me, that is perfect. That is literally, I can feel myself recharging. You've got to find your version of something that works for you that allows you to recharge, all right? And yeah, you've got, to, you've got to experiment with a few things to, to do it, but it's it's crucial. I'd say very few people can do without one day off a week. Mm. I never tried a flotation tank. Is that... Uh, amazing. I, it is. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So flotation tank, for anyone who doesn't know, also called sensory deprivation. Think of a big tank of water, fill it with Epsom salt, which allows you to float and also relaxes. So you lie in this water like the Dead Sea and you lie there for an hour and a half in complete darkness. Close your eyes and you go into really, really deep meditative states. So you've got no senses. You can't hear anything, which makes you feel like you're zoomed in in your head. It's really interesting. Like as soon as you shut the door, you feel like you're very in your head because there's no stimulus. Your, Your brain can't get distracted. So you get very in your own head. So you can see your own thoughts going. So first, very noisy, lots going on. A few little stresses come up, but then you go very deep into meditation. And because you're in these salts, your body is also relaxing. So the mind and the body are very, very intrinsically like connected. So when the body body's relaxed, the mind relaxes. So these salts without you realizing are slowly taking away tension in your shoulders, tension in your neck, and your body's getting relaxed. Your mind's starting to follow as well. And you give me this really kind of deep relaxing stage where for me, generally first 15, 20 minutes, my mind gets very, very busy, but then it starts to settle. And then I get to this really, really deep kind of meditative state. And regardless of that, even if you just thought of stuff and didn't, after you sleep absolutely amazing. Now I track my sleep every day and I've done it for two years using this whoop tracker and my sleep quality after a flotation tank, every single time is like 
90, it's out of 100. So I get 95 to 100% recovery every time I go to a flotation tank, even if I only sleep like six and a half hours the next day. It's incredibly good for restorative, like restoring the body. So uh, if you're someone who's tense, you've got like tension in your body, find, find, try and find a flotation tank in your area. Generally, I, it's someone, if, if you meditate somewhat frequently, because it's like, it is quite intense. Like you are like in your own head for like a while. There's no, there's no distractions. There's no phones. And um, if you haven't meditated before, it might be a big jump. But if you do meditate and you want to go a bit deeper and you want to relax your body, um, yeah, even like a, a once every few months, it'd be good to try out. And almost everyone I know who does it, like kind of gets a bit addicted to it because it's, mm-hmm. it's a really good thing and it's, it's just restores all parts of your body. Yeah, I heard from so many people who, I mean, I, I don't know too many people who've tried it, but from everybody who tried it, I hear that they're absolutely blown away because it's an experience unlike anything else. You basically in your own head and that's it there's yeah. nothing else there's no stimulus there's no there's no senses so yeah i'm i'm really curious to try it out i i need to look it up if there's one somewhere around around where i live but anyway we sort of segued away from the days off i want to circle back to it i want to mm-hmm. get back to because it it's a, such an important topic and and also like i occasionally well i sometimes think that some poker players avoid the day off on a sort of subconscious level because poker became not just a part of their life poker became their life which is a very very bad place to be in because that's a shitty life i tell you but you know because obviously a healthy relationship with your work would be that work is work it's part of your life it might be a meaningful part it might be a less so but it is a part. And the beauty of having poker as a part is you can shut the lid on it. You can just leave it away. You know, for, for some people, it might be, you know, you, you switch your laptop off and that's it. Now my day is I'm, I'm being myself. I'm no longer this poker player or worse. So I'm no longer that high stakes poker player or the mid stakes poker player or the unlucky poker player or whatever other uh, label you want to put you on yourself but yeah for some people taking a day off is difficult because poker is life mm-hmm. without poker what else is there do you mm-hmm. see that um, with people you work on uh, with occasionally and what are your thoughts about this uh, in general yeah i do see it i don't see it overly often because it is quite an extreme tendency generally of a uh, a very overachiever or someone who's really like generally to admit the high stakes guys is going to be the one who falls into this poker is life category. Now it's very dangerous to get there. Like you've touched on, you basically built an identity where poker is your life. So imagine if poker is your life, how are you going to feel when poker goes bad? How, how affected are you going to be by things going on in your poker environments? So even like the way you're affected by results can be very unhealthy. On the flip side, if poker is life, what a sad life. Like we were so much deeper than that. So uh, I think those people who, are, who resonate with that, that is me. You've got to find a way to build an identity away from poker. So the people I think who fall victim of this, they've almost got into poker, wanted to have success to prove something. All right. Maybe they didn't have success in sports or they failed at school or, some, or something like they didn't quite have the success they wanted. They wanted to prove themselves and other people that they could do something. They did it and they climbed to the mountain and poker was their thing and it is their thing. And they've had a lot of success. Now they built this identity. I'm a high stakes poker player. I rock. Now that's great. Amazing. Like well done for that. And like amazing. But what else? Your identity as a person, you've got to start building elsewhere as well. You've got to start creating like more of a life, more of a balanced life. And it's, it's bigger than like, I've always got, I always think like, 
we're playing the game of poker, but we're playing the game of life, which is infinitely bigger. Like it's so much better. Like, so we've got to, we've got to put poker in its context. What if you haven't got a life outside of poker, you've got to ask yourself like, why not? Like what, why, why haven't you? And what can you develop? So uh, you could start with relationships. You could start with hobbies. You could start with getting to know yourself. You could start with reading. And very often we get stuck in an external trap. What I mean is we think that this external reward later down the line is going to solve all our problems. All right. So if we look at what's going on in the brain, the chemical or the neurotransmitter that gets released is dopamine, but it's basically the reward molecule. Your mind's constantly going to go, is the effort worth the reward? Uh, you want to be able to fuel yourself for a long time. All right. So you don't want to burn out. So a lot of people go on this journey for success and they burn out along the way. The reason they burn out is because they don't reward themselves along the way. All right. So uh, this is called reward prediction error. Identity is a poker player and myself as like a healthy, normal person who looks after himself. And when poker was going badly, I was clinging on to the healthy version of myself. And I was going, oh, I'm a healthy version. I'm, 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 accept I'm getting um, good shape. I'm feeling better about myself. And I started to develop that. And then I could, could see the benefits of that. I was like, wait a second, I need to start producing, like creating more parts of my identity. So it's also a narrative, right? We've created this narrative, which is our identity. And you're, sometimes we've created really narrow. I'm a poker player, high stakes, super narrow label. You put yourself, you at any time can start to mold in more labels and more widespread identity. So start thinking outside the box. What can I do outside of poker that I enjoy? And always, if you're in doubt, always follow your interests. Don't like, go, oh, I should do this because Adam said so, or Runchuk said so. Follow your own interests. You'll have them, all right? You don't need to dig that deep, all right? So for me, like, I'm really interested in behavioral psychology. I'm really interested in the brain in general. So I can read that on that stuff very easily. I'm also very interested in the body, both my own body and how it, how other people function as well. So fitness, very easy for me to uh, to work on those things. Other people would hate those stuff. It would be a chore. So don't do those things. Like Find out what you like um, and build an identity outside of poker. And if you're struggling with that, it's just work to be done. You've, you've basically created a narrow identity that you need to work on, on widening. Mm. And there's another aspect to it, which we haven't touched upon yet, and I want to uh, go into it. With the day off for a poker player, a lot of people have this, um, I don't know how to, to call it, but this perception that anytime they're not playing, it's a cost. It's an opportunity cost or even more so on a more extreme, it's like an actual cost. Ha having a day off costs me X amount of dollars because that's the number of dollars I make per hour. So I take these hours off, which is a very unhealthy way to look at mm -hmm. things. But it's not an uncommon way to look at things because mm -hmm. very often we become more acutely aware of the value of our time. Mm -hmm. And for, for some people, it's for the positive. Like for me, the... The transition, I, I think the first time I started to really appreciate the value, the monetary value of my time, it was much easier to make a specific purchase or much easier to just, oh, well, of course, I'm going to hire a cleaning lady. Of course, I'm going to hire a gardener. I'm not going to do those things myself because, well, first of all, it's cheaper to pay somebody. And, and second, I'd rather have that time for myself. I'd, I'd rather do something with it. but. Some people still feel like, okay, this day off or even a week off or a month off, these are all direct expenses. What would you say to, to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what you touched on there is important to start with. 
that it is good to value your time. It is good to realize that our time is valuable and we should spend that generally in the highest value way. So like you said, like if you need a cleaner, if you need someone to do the gardening, you shouldn't do all these little bitty things if you've got a high ROI of your time. Now, if you push that too far and you start going every hour as an ROI for it, you live a, you live a, you start in a very weird life. I've seen people go so far down this hole. It's actually quite scary. Uh, like where meals with friends have an ROI on them and like, it's just like, what? Like you really, you really go dangerous path. So you've got to start thinking, okay, you've got to start seeing time off differently. Okay. So if you are this person who classes time off as a cost, you've really got to get out of that narrow frame of reference. As I've been talking about, do you want to have a long, successful port career? If the answer is yes to that question, these days offer adding time to those other hours. They also add in hours on the top end, all right? So uh, you're going to prove the quality of each other hour, all right? So you, you're going to, if you want to like, conceptualize it, just think those hours that you're costing yourself are getting directly added on to future hours anyway, all right? Like the top end it up. And also they're allowing those hours to keep, keep stacking up, all right, without burnout. So uh, there's almost this like illusion factor that we think we don't need that, that if we just keep clocking in hours, that the more hours, the better. You do 100 hours in a week, then do 110, like the more, the, it, it doesn't work. There's, a, there's almost like a, I guess a high point, and then the more effort you put in, you, you drop down, right? It's like a, like a performance drop-off curve, all right? So uh, you've got to realize that with your hours. So taking a day off isn't, although it might theoretically cost you that day, you gain it back elsewhere. And even if you just think about that mentally, and you can start to buy into that, because I had, I thought about this myself, because I was, I was in this, I was going down this avenue of everything optimized, everything hourly. And I had to start going, my mind just doesn't believe that it's not costing me money. It doesn't believe that I can't, it's, it is costing. So I had to start thinking more long-term. I started going, okay, like if my mind's optimized, if I'm feeling recovered, will I make that money back in the next week? And I was like, no, I probably won't make it back next week, but could I make it back in, in a month or so? If I'm like, if I'm sharper, my hourly's higher, I'm playing better poker, is there a chance that I could make that money back? And I was going, yeah, there probably is. And then I started to think longer term. I go, okay, if I want a long, successful life and career, will it be healthy for me to have time off? Will I likely make more money over the long term or less? So you, you start like re, re like um, frame this day off as cost to a, a long term investment. All right, so it's not a direct. You do you lose in the short term to gain in the long term. And this is like a lot of things. Like if you go to the gym, you come out there tired, sweaty, not feeling good, but. Fast forward a few months of doing that, you've got a better body. You don't get a better body for that one hour of exercise, all right? You feel worse. Same with like missing that, having that day off. You may not feel like you got that money in the short term, but you've invested in your long-term health, your long-term decision-making machine, which is going to allow you to make more money in the long-term. And once you start to believe that, it's again, it's something that we've got to believe not just like logically, but like with our own experiences that that actually works for you. Once you start to see it with a bit of experience, like, for, like I said to myself, I started having days off and realizing the day after I was really creative. My mind was really sharp. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay, maybe I could uh, earn this money back just by being fresher and sharper. Once you see it for yourself, you won't need convinced because it is actually a, a truth. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, it's very true that obviously if you see it as an investment in in the future productivity, it's it's clearly a good investment. And another way to think uh, about this and, and look Well, basically, yeah, the, the other way to, to look at this uh, thing is the actual value of time. What is the value of the time of your life, right? And this is something we talked about with Bill Perkins in the, in the previous, mm -hmm. one of the previous uh, podcast episodes. And I, if, some, if somebody hasn't uh, what, heard it yet, I highly recommend it. His book is, is really interesting and we go uh, over so many concepts on this topic of 
basically maximizing the life experiences. Because let's face it, I mean, on the deathbed, as uncomfortable a topic as it is, but nobody's looking back and thinks, oh, I wish I worked more. It's a stupid thing. Even if you love your job, it's unlikely that you're going to think like, I wish I worked more. You might wish that you achieved more, but that not always correlates directly with putting in more hours. Right? But also, like if you look back at the key points of your life, mostly it's the interesting experiences that you were having. This, this nice trip that you had somewhere, this great dinner with your friends, social interactions, new experiences. All of these things, you look back at it and it gives you pleasure. And I don't think anybody looks back into like, oh yeah, I, I worked like 12 hours a day, a month straight. That was a great, great time. I mean, even yeah. if you won a million dollars, you're still not unlikely that that's your top experience looking back five years back you know you're five years in the future coming back to the same thing we we discussed earlier you're five years in the future you look back at your life it's unlikely that that day that that event is gonna like top the list of, of all your things yeah hmm. yeah so there's, there's two things that i i'd say on that one is poker has this like inch tunnel pursuit so there's, there's so much so fulfilling about like self-mastery and trying to become a better version of yourself in a quest whatever it is. And poker is a great avenue to go, you know what? I'm just going to try and climb this poker ladder for my own intrinsic rewards of trying to be good at something. Like there's so much uh, self-fulfillment in that. That's one avenue of poker. The other thing with poker is it opens up opportunities, generally financial, lifestyle, to have really good experiences if you have success in poker. In life in general, like I said, it's an experience game. It's not about clocking up bank accounts. It's not about uh, just loads of achievements and just hollow things. It's about the experiences that you have. So uh, if you are someone who like just loves the game of poker and you get all your pleasure from the poker pursuit, awesome. You didn't really, that's, that's great. Like not a lot of people will get that, but there's still like some experiences that you want to have. So I think for you like to, to make sure you're doing both, you're getting the internal pursuit from poker and the internal rewards from that. And you're feeling good at the quest, but take advantage of the experiences that you can have through the game and even life in general, like regardless of what's going good, bad, indifference, have a good experiences. Like that is what matters. Like we obviously, we struggle to think about our deaths and like the end of our lives. But like at the end of the day, we're going to get there and we will regret the things we didn't do. We will regret the experiences that we didn't have. And like I said, no one's going to be like, I wish I had a gra- done those extra three hours a day of, of grinding. Like, and if you do that, that's really sad. If you, if you did answer that, like, I'd be very sad for you. Like that's what it come down to. You're going to regret experiences. So uh, just make sure you're uh, often what we do is I think another thing which I, I haven't really touched on is we often think, okay, I'm going to work really hard now and then I'll have all the experiences later. Okay, so I'm going, to, I'm going to sacrifice everything now so I can have better experiences in the future. Now, this is like, re, it's, a, it's a dangerous model to play because you never get there, all right? Like you always keep moving it. So you think you're going to get to a financial outcome uh, and then all of a sudden life's going to be amazing and you're going to have all these amazing experiences with no cares. You never really get there. So you're much off, and, and to, to think you want to get there is a real long shot as well. So you're much off better, you're much better off like having experiences along the way to, to, to the goal, like enjoy the process, not the outcome. It's the whole like dopamine in the empty box thing again. You're much better off having experiences along the way rather than like banking them all now, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice for a big box of experiences later down the line. All right. So be careful if you're, you're doing that right now. Mm. And especially it's, it's funny to sometimes see how so many poker players are saying, oh, you know what? A poker gives me freedom. Mm-hmm. 
I say, okay, define freedom. Well, it, it gives me the freedom to do anything I want with my life, with my time. You know, I have no commitments. I, I don't have clients to please. I don't have a boss to please. I'm my, I'm my own man or, or woman. And I do what I want to do. And I am in complete control of my time and direction of my life. The question is, okay, so how does it manifest? Like, so how are you actually using it? Because it sounds great. It sounds like you can achieve so much and you, you can actually use poker as a platform for maximizing your life enjoyment. You know, perhaps, especially if you have other hobbies on the side, you can have maximal enjoyment from those while doing what you otherwise like to do anyway, which is poker. Sounds great. But for the most part, it's just empty talk. Because mm. yeah, sure, it gives you freedom, but you know, if you don't use it, if you don't use it consciously, coming back to the same thing of not even taking days off, never mind having this freedom and, and actually using the freedom of, of your time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just so frustrating to see. And I, I don't know what would be the advice. Do you have an advice for people who actually, you know, on, on some level understand, okay, poker gives me freedom, but at the same time, don't understand that they're wasting this opportunity of, yeah. of getting the freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I just did a, a video on my YouTube channel very recently saying why chasing money doesn't lead to freedom. And it's all the concept that we feel like we're going to get to a kind of magic end of the rainbow where our circumstances are just perfect. We've got passive income. We've had all the success we want. And then we're going to have all this freedom and do everything we want and have all these amazing experiences. That is like such like fantasy land. Like in reality, like you don't get there. Okay. So uh, the way I look at it is like you said, if you're not having good experiences now on the journey, very good chance when you get to that next point, you're not going to have good experiences then either. You're not just going to flick a switch and go, uh, like it's people don't understand like when you've got more money and more stuff going on, that becomes the focus. Like it, on the on the journey up, getting the money becomes the focus. On the top, billionaires spend sleepless nights worrying about their their money and how can they pay less taxes and what about this person and he's paid and all this company this company's devalued. Like there's there's concerns that go all the way. So uh, there's no end point. So the way I look at it, like like I said, I, look, I like how he said, how do you define freedom? So I define freedom as an internal state, all right? So I feel like you can feel free with a billion or you can feel free with zero. By that, I mean, you feel like you're not, your internal state isn't linked to external circumstances and you have control over your life. You can do what you want. Now, people seem to think for whatever reason, society kind of conditioning that we need X amount of money to hit that, to hit that void. We live in like a world where like, even if you didn't work, the government would pay for your bills, they'd, they'd feed you. Like we live in a world like it's really, really hard to go so far down that you, you can't actually survive. So uh, when we think of freedom, say, like, I wanna be able to do what I want with my time and my, my life. Why can't you now? All right, maybe if you've got no money, you can't go to an exotic beach, but it's not the external thing you want anyway. It's the internal feeling. So freedom is I've got the freedom to express myself, to do what I want, to have control of my life. That's what we want. So my question would be, why do you not have it now? And if you do have it now, how are you, like you said, how are you using it? Okay. And then what people say, well, yeah, Adam, I, I've got this situation now. I want, I've got all these bills to pay. Once I get to this point, then I'll have more freedom. Okay. So you're putting your freedom in the future again. Okay. And it, it's dependent on these external things. So you think once you've crossed all these bridges, then freedom gets un unlocked and you get this freedom box. It doesn't work that way. You don't get your freedom badge. You have freedom now. How are you using it? Okay. And even if you haven't got full freedom, the freedom that you do have, how do you use it? You don't have a day off in one week, okay? And that's freedom. You, you, you are your own boss. You're a poker player. You are your own boss. 
how do you use your current freedom? Oh, you don't. You work every single hour of the day. Okay, cool. Is that, is that what are you going to do in the future when you've got more money? You're going to find ways to work. So like I'd reframe that as we think freedom comes from externals, like money achievements. I think freedom is internal state. What we think, we think money's going to make us feel a certain way. If I said, here's a magic wand, you feel a sense of freedom. And you'll go, what would that feel like? You'd feel like liberated, like you're enough already, like you can do what you want. And if you felt free, if you woke up and felt full freedom, what would you do? Would you lie around and watch Netflix? No, you wouldn't. You would like express yourself. You would create stuff. You'd do stuff. You'd give stuff. You'd, you'd want to have fun in it and do stuff in the world and interact with life because life was a massive fun game with nothing to prove other than to have good experiences. So you'd be, you'd be there. You wouldn't need a big fancy bank account. You'd just be interacting with life as it is. It's not this like he has 20 million. Now you're free because it's just, it's just like a, it's a, it's a, a situation you've created which doesn't create the actual internal state. Mm. There's a couple things I want to, um, again, underscore. Uh, one, what you said, which is generally true, but it shouldn't, shouldn't you know, stop people from, from trying. Because you said, uh, you know, you can't go to a fancy beach if you don't have any money, which is generally true, but not really. Because so many people choose the life of, okay, I'm just going to take my backpack and I travel and I just sleep on somebody's couch and I meet new people and I just be myself, which it obviously doesn't work for everyone. And for some people, it's a ridiculous idea, which is absolutely not for them. But it just goes to show there's always a way. Yeah, There's always a way. And perhaps, because very often what, what actually happens, perhaps that the amount of money that we have in mind of like, this is the amount that I need to fulfill such and such a goal. We don't, question that amount often enough perhaps that's mm. the wrong amount perhaps you need much less perhaps you already have it perhaps what you see as oh i need this amount of money to have this experience perhaps there's another way to have that experience perhaps you don't have to have that experience in the form that you originally imagined perhaps there's another way right and i hope that you know maybe that stirs some ideas in people and and, and they would um perhaps see uh, see a way of, of actually enjoying something that I want to enjoy uh, either way. And finally, I want to touch upon another aspect because a lot of people feel like, we, we talked about days off, but if we take it like, again, zoom out a bit and think about it like, because very often, let's say you have an experience that you want to enjoy and it's not even the money that's stopping you, it's time. Let's say you want to have that experience of going climbing the mountains or something or going to a country to experience a country in a, a completely new way, but experience it, not just move there and play poker, but go there and you know learn the culture, perhaps learn something from the country, like you know, go to Brazil, learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whatever, live in a jungle, learn surfing, something like that. Let's say it takes three months of your life. The thing that's stopping a lot of people is not that they don't have the money to do that, but it's that, are you seriously suggesting I can step away from poker for three months because I'm going to come, come back a weaker player, the game's moving on? Because we always have this sort of pressure, which oftentimes is, is not even real. It's not rationally real. The pressure of, oh, the game's going to change, the game's going to get worse. People have been saying the game's going to get worse for like 
as long as the games were there. <laughs> as, as long as the games were there, the games seem to always keep getting worse, yet here we still are, you know? It's crazy. And you always think like, okay, game's going to get worse. I'm going to be a much worse player. Right now, I'm pretty good. So if I step away, it's stupid because I step away at the high, high point or a midpoint or whatever. I step away from the current point, I'm going to be just much worse because the game's going to move, move ahead. And that's stopping some people from taking that long time off, you know? And it's ridiculous because it's coming back to the same idea of, of the freedom that poker allows us to do. Poker allows us to just, yeah, take three months off, go, go do what you want to do. And the reality of it is, if you think like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it when, when the games die, well, Good luck, you know, don't hold your breath because it, it seems to, it, it keeps going. And guess what, you know, if you decide to do it 10 years from now and you have a couple kids and family commitments and everything, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to, to any exotic country or anything that you wanted to do. That It's just not happening. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a... Uh... Pay attention to your own narrative, what you're telling yourself. Very often when we're delaying things, there's a level of fear, a level of insecurity, a level of it couldn't be this easy, I couldn't do it. And yeah, just just pay attention. Like if you're someone who's wanting to have certain experiences, ask yourself, why can't you do it sooner? Like there's um, a guy called Peter Thiel who's got a book called Zero to One. And he's got this concept like, um, tell me what you want want to achieve in 10 years. So they tell me like 10 year goals, I want to do all these things. And he goes, what's stopping you achieving it in six months? And then quickly they'll be like, well, first you'll have a lot of bullshit excuses, but then it all of a sudden narrows your focus. And you're like, well, why couldn't I? So anyone who's having these kind of delayed dreams of doing stuff, I ask you to ask them the question, what would it take to do it in a short space of time? So in the next six months or the next 12 months, if you want to wave the world to get back to normal, what would it take? And I, I always go, no bullshit. What would it take just to throw that in? Because there is like an element, like if you don't want to do it, Awesome, don't have it on your list. But having something on your list delayed to the future for like a future scenario to unfold is just you delaying doing something. And maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you can't see through your own narrative enough. But there's a very good chance every time you delay it, every de- with every delay, there's a chance that will not happen. All right, there's so mm. many people who want to travel the world. So many people who want to go out and see and explore things. But then they didn't. They bought a house, had kids. And now they go, oh, when the kids get older, then I will. They won't. Like, there's this, this like element of I'll delay and do it later. You just can't. If you want to do stuff, decide what you want to do, book it in, and then and challenge yourself and go, why can't I do it in the next X amount of time frame? And once you start asking the questions, you might not see the solutions. Like you said, like you can often be more resourceful. There's often many ways to do things, but you need to ask the right questions first before you unlock those answers. Mm, absolutely. And, and also, like the flaw in the thinking that we have about the future is oftentimes we think about the future without thinking about the circumstances of the future. We sort of think, well, you know, I am myself now. I'm going to be myself 10 years from now. So this is the same decision. It's not the same decision because your circumstance is going to be different. Your, your life circumstances, your health is going to be different, you know, and travel the world when you're 60. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, I want to see that. You know, and, and we see those people, right? We, we yeah. see a lot of, uh, you know, people who retired and now they're like 75 or something and slowly, slowly strolling around praying that there's no stairs wherever they're going you know <laughs> it's 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 miserable and it's sad it's still good that they're doing it at least now i mean better now than never yeah but you just think of should have done it before 
Mm. You should have done it before. And I hope you did it before. Now you're just continuing doing that. And I'm sure there's mm. people like that. But a lot of the people just waited till the retirement or till some specific milestone waiting mm. for poker to die or waiting mm. for this. Like, well, good luck with that. Mm. You know, you keep waiting. But remember that your life circumstance is going to change. You 10 years from now is not the same person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the kind of take home from that is live your life now, like live your life now, whatever that means for you. It doesn't mean be super impulsive and just do everything on a whim, but start to decide what you want to get out of your life and start living it in a shorter time frame. Like stop thinking you're going to get somewhere in the future and start expressing freedom. Like Paul, like we've been saying, Paul gives you an opportunity for freedom. Use it, use it now and use it when it's, it suits you. Obviously we're in a ridiculous time frame at the moment where maybe travel's limited and it's not the best time to go and explore the world but like there's just certain things that you've got to create the life that you want and start telling you have the experiences that you want in a shorter time frame and i think that's a, a lesson everyone should be thinking about absolutely i feel like it's a good place to end today and uh, adam listen man it's such a pleasure to have you on the second time i hope we do it again we should do it on sure. a regular basis. I always yeah. enjoy the conversation with you. I'm definitely going to put all the links to your stuff in the show notes, to your YouTube channel, which you put a lot of videos there on a regular basis. People should definitely check it out. And, um, you know, all, all the other social media and everything is going to be in the show notes. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. It's been, yeah, great chat. And hopefully the audience has had some good value from this. If you're watching this on YouTube, let us know in the comments what you enjoyed from this video or this interaction. And yeah, I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Hope to be back on the show soon. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.